Well, let's read our short text for this morning from 2 Kings, chapter 2, verses 23 to 35. He, that is Elisha, went up there from Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore forty-two of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Well, let's pray together as we come to hear God's word preached to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come again to you in Jesus' name, we pray your blessing upon the things we hear, that your word might have effect upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. To prepare a sermon often takes a lot of time and effort, especially when the text is a difficult one, and so it's always good to get someone else's perspective when it comes to starting off. And this perspective caught my eye. It's written by an American Methodist pastor by the name of Russ Adams. This is what he wrote. Several years ago, I found myself 90 miles northeast of Moscow. I was in the Russian city of Dimitrov at an orphanage called Renewal Orphanage, home to approximately 120 handicapped orphans. We were there to offer them hope and remind them that they were loved by God. The days were filled with a variety of activities and then in the evenings as the children were going to bed, our little mission team would gather for devotions and everyone was required to take a turn leading them. The professionals went first. The most uncomfortable went last. The very last person was a high school student. I offered to help him and he agreed. I asked if he knew any scripture. He gave me an uncomfortable look and said, Well, I know one piece of scripture, but I don't think it applies. I asked, What is it? He said, It comes from Second Kings, and it talks about 42 teenagers being eaten by bears. I said, That sounds perfect. Let's do it. Can I be honest with you? His devotion was the best devotion on the trip. I don't remember anyone else's devotion on that trip, but I do remember his. And I figured, if he could preach on that scripture, then I could preach on any scripture. End of quote. Well, that may well need to be the case, because at first glance, this text about the bears poses some real problems for the person who claims that the Bible is the word of God. If you don't want to believe that the Bible is God's word, and if you do want to find every and any excuse for not doing so, maybe this morning's text is your go-to. Perhaps no other incident in the Old Testament or the whole of the scriptures has called forth more criticism than this one. Perhaps no other text appears on so many atheistic websites as this one. Here are some of their thoughts. Here's why I can't believe the Bible. The God it presents is cruel, mean and a horrible, nasty monster. Or this rather lengthy quote. 
How can I believe in a God who would send bears to devour little children for innocently teasing an old man whose appearance probably was just unusual for the day? Just picture it. He is walking along, minding his own business, when children start hurling abuse at him. Most of us would just keep walking or maybe yell some insults back, but Elisha decides to take it one step further. Invoking the name of God, he summons bears to come and claw them to death. And so on it goes. End of quote. And that, by the way, was the clean version. The very strong thought out there about this event is plain. What so-called God of love would send bears to attack some kids who only mocked Elisha's baldness? And how could the Bible not only say that this happened, but also by silence endorse the actions of the prophet Elisha in this case? Now these are allegations that are very serious, and they deserve our full attention and they deserve our careful investigation, so that we see the story in its context, but also the story behind the story. So we've come a little way into Two Kings to see something of the beginning of the ministry of the prophet Elisha, noting as we have his call to be a prophet and his succession to the office of prophet and then of his first miracle in relation to the waters at Jericho. And then comes this, the bears. There are three things I want you to note that may help the whole thing fall into some sort of perspective and then three things we can apply. First, I want you to note the perpetrators of the offence. If you read this account from the ESV, as I have just done, you might be shocked to hear that it was not young men who were attacked by bears in this way, but small boys. That's the case, and the situation is all the more harder to work through, and we would recoil in horror at the ideas of at the idea of bears mauling a gaggle of preschoolers. But the Hebrew words used to describe these youth indicate they were not children while not being fully grown adults either. The Hebrew word is na'ah, which is often rendered as children or boys, but has a broad range of meanings. It can denote everyone from baby Moses to fully grown Absalom, to a servant, an armour bearer, a king's official, and significantly for us, a priest. You might remember in 1 Samuel 16 that when Samuel visited the home of Jesse to anoint one of his sons as king, that David was called the youngest son. The very same term used here to denote these young men. Now David was not definitely Now David was definitely not fresh out of kindergarten or primary school when Samuel anointed him. He had already at this stage of his life killed lion and bear and in the next chapter proceeded to cut down Goliath who was described as being a mighty man and a man of war. So what we have is a reference to David as a young adult, late teens, early twenties. This means, of course, the average Sunday school picture of the little boy David flinging a rock at the big bad giant is maybe not quite an accurate picture. 
Now, I can't speak on behalf of those who decided to include small boys in the text of the ESV. All I can do is point out the difference here in some of the other contemporary versions. The NIV says boys. The New American Standard says young boys. And the New King James says youths. But I'll stick by the Hebrew and suggest, if I may, that they certainly weren't innocent children just being childish. They were young men who knew what they were doing. Second, I want you to note the nature of the offence. The text is quite clear about where all this took place. It says that the incident happened near Bethel, either in the town or nearby at least. Once Bethel had been a leading centre in the worship of God, particularly during the rule of Samuel, but since the days of Solomon, Bethel became synonymous with idolatry. We've learned already from two kings that there was a school of the prophets in Bethel, but there was also another school run by an idolatrous cult who worshipped a golden calf set up years before by Israel's king Jeroboam. And as a result, Bethel became basically one strong and resistant idolatrous outpost firmly against everything Moses had commanded. This information just helps to set the scene for us even more. Elisha was returning from Jericho when this gang ridiculed the prophet of the living God, showing that they despised not only the prophet who wore Elijah's cloak, but also the God of Israel whom Elisha represented. What of their words are going up, you baldhead? Going up, you bald head. One commentator puts it this way. Their jeering, recorded in the slang of their day, implied that if Elisha were a great prophet of the Lord as Elijah was, he should go on up into heaven as Elijah reportedly had done. And the term bald head may have alluded to lepers who had to shave their heads and were considered detestable outcasts. Or it may simply have been a form of scorn, for baldness was undesirable. But since it was customary for men to cover their heads, the young men probably could not tell if Elisha was bald or not. They regarded God's prophet with contempt. And Elisha then called down a curse on the villains, and we could and should note that this cursing stemmed not from Elisha's pride, but from their disrespect for the Lord as reflected in their treatment of his spokesman. That 42 were mauled by two bears suggests that a mass demonstration had been organised against God and his prophet. End of quote. Now we all know that there are insults and there are insults. There are those that are light-hearted and those that are not. It's part of our Aussie culture to give so-called insults to each other and get away with it because we know it's just a joke. But this insult headed Elisha's way was not a joke. It was sharp and it was loaded with contempt. And if this insult had come to the prophet of the Lord and God unpunished, then it would only have served to strengthen these youths' stance in their unbelief. So we also understand then that by their words, go on up, that they were telling Elisha that he should disappear 
just as Elijah had done, therefore implying that they were more than glad that Elijah had left the scene and that they wished Elisha would do the same. They wanted him to get lost. They wanted him out of the picture. They did not want to submit to the Lord's rule through him and they did not want him. Sound like anyone else in the scriptures? Shouts of crucify him, once filling the public space. They certainly didn't want Jesus to rule over them, did they? Third, note the punishment of the offence. The text tells us that Elisha turned to them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. Now rather than seeing this as Elisha getting all head up and angry and reacting first without thinking, rather we should read this as Elisha responding with the Lord's mind on this matter and not his own. Had Elisha's curse upon them simply come about because of his own bruised ego, then surely God would have not endorsed the curse by giving immediate effect to it. Elisha didn't speak in personal revenge for what had been said, but as the prophet of the Lord, as the mouthpiece of God, speaking his judgment upon sin, declaring his justice as swift and sure as it is and one day will be. Note, Elisha didn't actually call on the bears. He only pronounced judgment on these demonstrators. And God decided what form the response took and did so probably to strike terror into any other youth gangs that were thinking of setting upon any other anointed prophets of the Lord with violence or with contempt. And even then, if you think 42 being killed by bears was bad, then think on this. God sent them this warning that they might be kept from an even greater danger. The savagery of wild animals may be brutal enough, but it was mild compared to the legendary cruelty of the Assyrians who would attack them in 722 BC. The disastrous fall of Samaria may have been avoided had the people repented after the bear attack and the increasingly severe divine judgments that followed it. Those same judgments also fell upon Judah nearly 200 years later. And for what reason? We heard it from 2 Chronicles 36 this morning. The people mocked God's messengers, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. Now look again at the situation in our text. Is it a group of children killed by bears because they laughed at a man's bald head? No, it's a group of rebels who think they can mock the living God who once said of himself, The Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What then do we make of this? There are some matters that flow from the incident. First, think upon the parallel between Elisha and Jesus. 
Elisha's first miracle had been the healing of the waters, which was followed by this incident in which he was confronted by the unbelief of these youths. Jesus' first miracle had been turning water into wine, which was swiftly followed by something similar in nature. Following his attendance at that wedding, Jesus went to Nazareth, into the synagogue, where he picked up and read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and preached a very short, sharp and pointed sermon. And the result was that they cast him out of the city, taking him to a hill outside the city to throw him over, only to find that Jesus walked through them, walked away from them, and in judgment turned his back on them and left them. In both incidents, the unbelief of those who met Elisha and those who heard Jesus stands out as being the root cause of the judgment that eventually fell. Second, think upon the principle that the godly will always face persecution. In 2 Timothy 3, and Paul says that all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It was so with Elisha. It was so with all the prophets, the Lord Jesus and the apostles, and it shall be with us. Why should we expect anything different? The story is told that a young man once came to D.L. Moody and said, I want to be a Christian. Must I give up the world? Moody replied, If you live for Christ, the world will give you up. Jesus said, If they hated me, they will hate you. In Galatians 6-7, Paul says, Do not be fooled, God cannot be mocked. Well, he can, you might say. A plenty do it. Ah, yes, but they will not just walk away scot-free. It was for this reason that King Nebuchadnezzar was cut down by God in the book of Daniel. And then in Acts 12, we see King Herod face the same fate. The rest of Paul's quote goes on to say, What you sow is what you reap. And we know the Old Testament text, If you sow to the whirlwind, you will reap only destruction. Even close to the end of the New Testament age, we find in 2 Peter 3 verse 4 that scoffers had already begun to say about the promised return of Jesus. He promised to come, didn't he? Centuries have passed. Nothing has changed. Scoffers will scoff and mockers will mock and the Lord takes note, storing all for the day of his judgment. Let us not forget that it will not be the scoffers who are laughing on the day that Jesus returns. Third, think here upon the prospects of judgment and grace. Go back for a moment to the verses previous to these, which record the healing of the water supply of the city, and couple them with these verses. On one hand, we have the arrival of healing and blessing, but in the next section, the focus is clearly upon the arrival of justice and judgment. Put these two together and what have you got? You've got the message of the gospel, the double-edged sword of the gospel. One edge that is the message of grace, the other that is the message of judgment. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. He says to some people, to those who are being saved, we, that is the apostles, 
who preach the gospel are the aroma of life. And to others, to those who are not going to be saved, but are under the judgment of God, we are the aroma of death. Wherever and whenever the gospel is proclaimed, it acts as a sword that divides and separates. It forces people into two camps, believers and unbelievers, sheep or goat, for or against, in the light or in the darkness, on the narrow road or on the broad. The wonderful message of the cross is wonderful to those who are being saved, but nonsense to those who are perishing. It is the message of salvation to those who believe, but for those who do not, the awful message of a fearful prospect of judgment that won't be carried out by bears attacking randomly, but by a holy and a righteous God. We read about it this morning from 2 Thessalonians 1. It's not a pretty picture that Paul creates there. It is, however, a stark reminder of that double-edged sword of the gospel, that on the one hand God welcomes all who come to him in repentance, but on the other hand, says the Apostle Paul, he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The man is Jesus. Are you ready for him? Are you ready for this day to come? If you are, praise God for his saving grace. If you're not, take hold now of the gospel and the free offer of salvation before the day comes. Flee to Jesus. He will save you. Will you do that? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you that your word is a double-edged sword. It cuts to the heart. It forces us to recognize our own sin. But in doing so, it brings us to the wonderful truth that you accept sinners and forgive them and give them grace by which they may be saved. As we have thought upon your word today, upon judgment, upon themes of judgment and grace, we thank you for that amazing grace that you have given us in Christ and pray that we might always trust in him, that we might be ready for the day of his return when he comes, when at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We pray for this world unknowingly waiting for this day of judgment. We pray that your gospel might speed forth and bring many to the light and the knowledge of what Christ has done for their salvation. We pray this in his name. Amen.